This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. At this time four years ago, record-breaking rainfall forced thousands of people to evacuate along the northern front range in Plains. Eight people died. Rivers and streams jumped their banks, and some charted new paths, often through people's homes and yards. Some of these waterways and the residents nearby are still being impacted by that huge 1,000-year storm. One of the most hard-hit areas was the left-hand creek and its watershed. The velocity and volume of water that came down the canyons, there's two huge canyons above us. The water just, it's like a, a funnel, took all this water and shot it out right here, right at the bottom of the canyon. Mark Schunemann lives right next to a gentle curve in the left-hand creek, not too far from Lyons, Colorado, in the foothills of Boulder County. Today, he remembers that when the floodwaters receded, sediment and debris covered his property, several feet deep. And the creek, which used to flow next to his back porch, was yards away. It went in front of the house, which is across the stream from me, and actually took out a corner of their their foundation. So now the people that live on, used to be on the north side of the stream, are now on the south side of the stream. And, you know, I paid big bucks to live on the stream, and I wanted the stream And it wasn't just Schunemann's neighborhood dealing with that conundrum. Up and down Boulder County, people asked, should waterways be moved back to where they were before the 2013 floods? Well, here... The agreement within the community and and within the neighbors that live here was that they wanted to keep the creek where it was previously. Jesse Olson has been working here as the coordinator for the Left Hand Watershed Oversight Group. The Boulder County nonprofit is leading the way in Left Hand's recovery, with numerous restoration projects taking place all along the creek. This project, to get the creek back next to Schunemann's house, isn't done, four years after floodwaters receded. In fact, Olson says FEMA money is still coming into the area for restoration projects on hold since the 2013 flood. We're looking at about, I would say, 75% of the watershed has active projects funded and are currently underway. Um, and so in terms of getting this these projects complete, that is definitely a huge step and we're moving in the right direction towards recovery. Walking along the curve of the creek, Olson points out features that she says will help restore the river for the future and help keep it from charting a new path. These features they've added look completely natural and unassuming. So... This may look like nothing, but actually there's about 30 logs that are buried into this bank and tied in with um, large rock. And so if the creek were to try to go create that new path again, going straight through this bank, it's going to have a very hard time versus what it was like during the flood event. How much of this is reconstruction? Is it all reconstruction? Yeah, it's all reconstruction. We we um, have this fabulous team that we're working with. OTEC um, is the design team, and so they very carefully positioned where you see the larger rock material. And then the pools are slower moving. This is very important for, for fish to have a variety of, of habitat. You need uh, riffles or the fast-moving water in order to have this nice bug composition for fish to be able to eat. And then the pools are nice and deep, and the overhanging root structures provide shade for the fish. Think of the restoration project like an amusement park water ride. Every stone and water feature is strategically placed for maximum effect. And it was no simple task. Shortly after the floodwaters receded, dump trucks took out 10,000 loads of sediment and debris from Mark Schunemann's neighborhood. 
for this stage of the project, where we are now, 8,000 loads were removed. They expect to finish this particular project in the next month or so, but the work won't be done. They just can't leave it to nature. That's where, Olson says, community and neighborhood support come in. We need to make sure that we're keeping an eye on making sure that these projects are remain functional into the future. And we want to, you know, really preserve the legacy that we're kind of building here. Now, are landowners trained to notice, like, hey, this isn't doing what it was designed to do? How do, yeah. how do they play into this? Yeah, so we're working on building a citizen science program where we want to engage the landowners and community members in, in monitoring. And so that hasn't, hasn't begun yet, but it's something we're working towards in the future. These volunteers will monitor the fish population and make sure invasive weeds and plants are kept at bay. They'll work closely with Olson and her group in the months and years ahead. But she says all this will take more money now, not just to help the creeks in Boulder County, but also in anticipation of other disasters. It's hard to get lessons learned. It's hard to know what worked, what didn't. It would be really important for future disasters and future um, recovery efforts to know what, what's actually working, what's not, and why. The road to recovery continues for Mark Schooneman and his neighbors along Left Hand Creek. Looking at the water again, he reflects on the massive flood recovery effort taking place right now in Florida and Texas. He encourages people there to be patient. You know, when all this happened, it, we were all deer in the headlights, including Boulder County, a- including other watersheds, including the state. You know, in hindsight now, it's four years later, um, and it's crazy that it took four years, but this, this is how government works, and, and bless their hearts, they actually followed through with the, what they said they were going to do right after the floods. They said, we're going to help you, which I hear that now from Houston and, and from Florida. We're going to help you. And what, what I think that does, if you believe them, which now I believe that they will help them, is it gives you hope, and and what they have to be aware of is they need patience. Mark Schooneman speaking with my colleague Nathan Heffel. More than a dozen Colorado cities were inundated four years ago, including Evans, Estes Park, Jamestown, and Greeley. Last week, Loveland unveiled signs commemorating the floods. They show how high waters rose there and highlight the work of first responders. Amazon will build a second headquarters somewhere in North America. But where exactly will this $5 billion investment land? Well, the New York Times created some buzz last week by telling Amazon it should choose Denver. Claire Kane Miller co-wrote the article and is on the phone with us. Hi, Claire. Hi. First off, why does Amazon want a second headquarters outside of its current home in, uh, in Seattle? So it's just growing incredibly quickly, and it feels it needs more office space. It's an urban company. Um, It's headquarters. Unlike many of the companies in Silicon Valley, it's in the city of Seattle, not out in the suburbs. Um, And so it's running out of room and growing quickly and, um, and wants a new city to grow into. Are the Seattle suburbs in the running, do you think? 
I doubt it. It seems to want to diversify somewhere else in the United States, I think, for the sake of business. You know, it's a company that obviously delivers to everybody's doorstep. It has warehouses all over the country, so it has a lot of incentives to um, to be out in the United States and not just in the Pacific Northwest. You set up a kind of March Madness bracket of cities that could compete for these Amazon headquarters, which they're calling HQ2. Uh, Amazon very publicly spelled out the criteria they're looking for. And uh, the first thing is a population of at least a million people. Why do they need that sized city? So they're looking to grow their business and grow it quickly. They're not looking for a small place. They're looking for a place with a ton of qualified employees, educated employees who work in tech, and also the kind of amenities that attract those employees. So lots of restaurants and lots of cultural events. They want, you know, it to be very easy to fly to Seattle. So so they need a big city for all those reasons. Oh. And yet uh, the economy here is buzzing. Unemployment is low. So it seems a bit counterintuitive that Denver would qualify because wouldn't it be harder to hire people here? Amazon thinks the opposite. It wants what it says is a business-friendly environment, and this means a few things. For one, it means a place that wants Amazon. A lot of cities, including some people in Seattle, don't particularly want Amazon. It wants um, a city that wants it, that is um, open to big business and is willing to give some tax incentives and other things to um, to attract it. It also wants a place where the economy has been booming, and that means you know that means that there will be more business for Amazon. There will be more partnerships. There will be more employees. More employees will want to move there. So I see what you're saying. When unemployment is low, it might seem like there aren't a lot of eligible employees. Um, But going into a place where unemployment is high means that it's a struggling economy and probably not one where Amazon's really going to be able to thrive as a business. And so if it lands in Metro Denver, it it could mean more imported employees, perhaps more transplants coming to Colorado. I will say that Denver Mayor Michael Hancock has said the city is talking with uh, economic development partners about incentives for attracting the company. Uh, so Am- Amazon wants whatever community to sweeten the pot, I guess. That's right. It's very interested in a place that wants it. And that's right. The mayor of Denver is has said that he is interested. Some cities, like I said, are not interested. Yeah. But uh, Denver is. Amazon wants that. And yes, it, it wants also a place with a big university that is producing the kind of tech talent that it needs to hire, which Denver has. And you're right, it probably will mean more people moving to whichever city gets the headquarters. There's also been um, a lot of interesting work by economists showing how many additional jobs. So for one college-educated tech worker, um, that can create five additional jobs in the forms of you know, waitresses and teachers and um, construction workers and jobs like that. So um, it is really a a job boon for whichever city gets it. Um, on the other hand, that has turned off a lot of cities that don't particularly want to grow that quickly. Yeah. Gosh, the natural question here in Colorado uh, in terms of servers and teachers is where are they going to live that's affordable? And I, I guess I, I'd like to focus on that. There's a lot of traffic here. It's getting worse. Uh, the cost of living is growing uh, very quickly, as is the cost of housing. How does that figure into Amazon's search? Right. Well, whoever wins, Denver or or whichever city, would probably want to call some friends in Seattle because that has been their complaint. Um, It's the complaint in Silicon Valley. I think when Amazon looks at a place like Denver, 
they say, oh, it's not nearly as bad as San Francisco or New York or Seattle has gotten. Like, they think they have bad traffic and high housing costs, but they haven't seen anything because in those cities it's, it's risen, you know, even more rapidly, which is why one reason that companies are needing to look to new places. But, of course, you know, if these jobs come in, that could mean worse congestion. It could mean higher housing costs. And, and these are issues that a lot of big cities are struggling with right now, including the big cities um, like San Francisco, where a lot of tech companies are nearby. Like you said, teachers, servers cannot afford to live in these places, nurses, other other jobs. And um, this will definitely be a challenge for whichever city gets Amazon. The scale of this, Claire, is is really remarkable. The company says the new headquarters could hire as many as 50,000 people over the next 10 to 15 years with an average income of $100,000. And another proviso for Amazon is high quality of life. I suppose that connects to things like traffic, uh, affordability, but I suppose also the fact that the mountains are pretty close and maybe, I don't know, maybe skiing and the outdoors adds to Denver's argument here. That's exactly right. So Amazon is extremely focused on things um, that we refer to as amenities, and it wants a place that has similar attractions as Seattle because we know that these young and educated tech workers are not going to want to live in a city without these things. So outdoor recreation is a huge one. In Seattle, you can get to mountains and the beach and forests for hiking very quickly. Of course, that is also true of Denver. Um, Things like restaurants and microbreweries are a big one. It sounds kind of funny. Someone even joked, you know, why don't you just make them count how many microbreweries are in each city and then <laughs> and then pick that as the winner. But this is the kind of thing that young people, educated tech workers want nearby for their free time. And another interesting thing that Amazon cited is a culture of inclusion, sort of a progressive culture. And um, Seattle has that and, you know, the Bay Area has that and Denver has that. These are things like... Um, Liberal marijuana laws, openness to gay marriage, things like that are important to this group of workers and to this company. Oh. How, how diverse is Amazon's workforce in general? And I, I suppose I'm asking point blank racial diversity. Uh, like, would we expect that wherever it moves, that that workforce would be fairly diverse? I think it's warehouse workforce is probably more diverse, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're yeah. talking about the tech workers, and like all the tech companies, it does have a diversity problem. It is over. It overrepresents um, white and Asian men. So there aren't as many um, Latino or black workers, and also there aren't as many female tech workers at Amazon as are represented um, at companies outside the tech industry. Denver has sometimes earned the moniker Menver uh, because of, <laughs> of uh, its male population. I suppose that if Amazon comes here, that could uh, that could only be reinforced. Why is Amazon doing this so publicly, so kind of in, in such a splashy way, having this process be out in the open? My guess is it's doing that because it wants to start a bidding war. It's really interested in these incentives, a city that's going to give it major tax breaks, um, you know, a city that is going to give it maybe, you know, cheap prices on major commercial real estate. And so, it, you know, a lot of people, it does bring, we've talked a lot about the downsides of it coming, but it also brings a lot of jobs. It brings a lot of income to an area. A lot of cities, including Denver, um, have said, their local governments have said they're interested, and it's trying to set off um, a race between those to see where it can get the best offer. I have a journalistic question for you, Claire Kane Miller of The New York Times. Why did you do this exercise? Why choose a headquarters for Amazon? 
we obviously weren't trying to uh, do Amazon's work for us or for it or any of the city's uh, work for them when they're making these proposals to Amazon. We wanted to do it more as a thought exercise. Um, Amazon was very detailed in what it was looking for, and we thought that guiding readers through this process would help readers think about, you know, what are our major cities like? What are the benefits? Why are we having these problems with congestion and um and, you know, housing prices and what what do our major cities offer and um, what are some of their detractions and, you know, have people have this as a thought exercise to really think about, you know, the business environment and the urban environments in our country. Have you gotten pushback from some of the communities that made the list saying, don't 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 say us? Don't put us in the spotlight. <laughs> oh, yes. This has been quite controversial with readers this piece. So we've gotten both. We've gotten a lot of people saying, excuse me, you missed us. Why did you <laughs> cut us? We are, we, you know, I, there are a lot of cities that are interested. Dallas is one, very interested. Um, we've gotten a lot of people saying, why doesn't Amazon go into somewhere struggling like Detroit and revitalize it? Well, you know, there's an argument to be made for that, but that is not Amazon's goal as far as what it has said publicly. Um, and then we've also heard, yes, from people saying, no, we don't. We don't want Amazon here, um, and including some readers from the Denver area. Okay. Thanks so much for sharing uh, your thinking with us, Claire. Thanks for having me on. Claire Kane Miller of the New York Times is co-author of Dear Amazon. We picked your next headquarters for you, and their answer was Denver. Amazon accepts proposals until October nineteenth. There's something to listen out for next week, the next episode of Breaking Bread. We bring Coloradans together around a dinner table to see if they can work through their political differences. Adam Brock of Denver was with us last time. He'll join us again. He voted for Hillary Clinton and admits he's in a bubble, but he doesn't want to be. I've been craving more and more to have those kinds of conversations just to be able to listen, to understand where folks are at, why they have made the choices they have that on the surface, feel so different from mine, but maybe aren't. Adam Brock and the others will be back Wednesday for Breaking Bread. And we have a special guest who will guide us through an exercise that may help you establish some common ground. If you doubt the global community can address climate change, history says otherwise. Thirty years ago, taking the lead from scientists, the world tackled the disappearing ozone layer, vital to human health. As CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood explains, Colorado scientists were crucial to that effort. Two faded pictures hang on Brian Toon's office wall. One from an airplane as he flies over the South Pole, the second from the ground of his plane's exhaust plume. You know, it's self-portrait, I guess. I know, a selfie of the time. Toon is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Lab for Atmospheric and Space Physics. The pictures are three decades old. Toon was in on groundbreaking studies of the ozone layer. The problem was alarming. Scientists had just discovered a huge hole in the ozone over Antarctica. But it's in such a remote part of the world that, you know, it's very difficult to make observations there or have any idea what was going on. Ozone high up in the atmosphere absorbs most of the sun's ultraviolet radiation. We need it to help prevent skin cancer. Toon wanted to know why this hole appeared every spring near the coldest place on Earth. He and others gathered reams of data. They tested out theories. An early one thought chemicals from some airplane engines were to blame. And so after a flight, um, the data would all be on these paper charts, these little wiggly lines, and people would hang them up on the walls. 
And uh, so you rush over and see, oh, well, did they, they didn't see any nitrogen oxides. That answer is gone. Airplanes weren't the problem. Chemicals and certain products were to blame. Sam Oltmans is a retired National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration scientist who still works with the agency. There was never anything like this before. And Oltman's seen decades of research. Early in his career, he collected baseline data when the ozone layer was healthy. But the mid-1980s, it wasn't. Later that decade, scientists identified chemicals in hairspray and air conditioners as the cause. So there was some resistance from particular, like the manufacturers at first. But unlike climate change, it wasn't... uh political litmus test. In September 1987, the U.S. and about two dozen other countries signed the Montreal Protocol. They would all reduce production and consumption of chemicals, known as chlorofluorocarbons. In 1987, they all agreed to build a brake pedal. To save the ozone layer. David Fahey works at NOAA in Boulder. In 1987, he was in the thick of it as a research scientist. He said the world agreed to build that brake pedal for an important reason. It's not going to prevent the automobile crash. It just means you're going to crash at a slightly slower speed. Fahey says the Montreal Agreement has been successful because it's changed. Scientists learned more through research, and leaders have revised the agreement multiple times. They phased out other ozone-depleting substances. Today, Fahey has a front-row seat to all the action. He's co-chair of the Montreal Protocol's Scientific Assessment Panel. Science played a key role each time the parties came together and considered this. Made an adjustment or amendment to the protocol. Science was the foundation. Over the years, climate change became part of the discussion. It turned out that many of the chemicals that ate away at ozone also contributed to climate change. As recently as last year, world leaders decided to phase out even more of the harmful chemicals. Montreal is a success. As Brian Toon at CU Boulder reflects on his mission 30 years ago, he's puzzled why the U.S. struggles to address climate change today. Americans build things. Americans solve problems. If there is a mystery, you know, the American spirit is go solve the mystery. You know, so Americans don't go stick their head in the sand and say, I I, I don't understand climate science, so I'm going to ignore it. Scientists say the ozone hole over Antarctica is no longer growing. It's expected to take decades to recover. Ozone researchers tracking that have a new challenge. As scientific knowledge around climate change develops, it makes their job even more complicated. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. In his time, a cowboy named Casey Tibbs turned rodeo on its head. He had movie star good looks, a flashy style, and when he rode a bucking bronco, he was as graceful as a dancer. If I was talking to a young person today, I'd say he was a rock star, you know, and that's what he was way before his time, way before we we really knew what a rock star was. This guy, this guy was it. Gene Autry was the singing cowboy. Roy Rogers was the king of cowboys. But Casey was the most beloved. And that's that's a fact. Following his fame in the 1940s and 50s, Tibbs hit hard times. But his legend never died. A statue of him outside of the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame in Colorado Springs is called The Champ. Tibbs is the subject of a documentary screening this weekend at the DocuWest Film Festival in Denver. Justin Kaler wrote and produced Floating Horses, The Life of Casey Tibbs. He speaks with my colleague Nathan Heffel. Justin, welcome to the program. 
Thank you for having me. What was it about Tibbs' personality that captured the public's imagination? Well, I just don't think anybody had ever seen anyone like him before in the rodeo world. You know, you think I've seen a lot of photographs where here's Casey with a group of men and all the men are wearing blue jeans and white button down shirts. And then all of a sudden here's Casey. He's got like the purple silk, the, the bandana on, and he's got his hat tipped back and he's good looking. He just stood out um, with his looks. And then his writing, of course, just spoke volumes of, of how different it was from anybody else that ever came along. It's almost like personal branding before that even became a thing. He was an incredible marketer. I don't know if he knew he was that good of a marketer, if he planned all this out, um, but he knew how to market himself and how to promote the sport of rodeo because if he could... Sp- promote himself, he would bring people to a rodeo that would watch him. So it was it was a brilliant move on his part. I found it very interesting in the documentary that you you focused on how rodeo had evolved from almost being like a sideshow circus to something as as big as it is today. Yeah, rodeo it went through some really hard times and they had a bad reputation. Um, not only just the rodeo producers themselves, but the rodeo cowboys were often looked at as looked down upon. And that was one of the reasons why his father didn't like him to go into rodeo. So Casey had a, a huge wall to climb in order to bring popularity and respect to the sport of rodeo. His star was, was kind of short lived. He won nine world rodeo championships, but he wasn't in the ring very long. So what did he mean to the sport itself? Well, I mean, I hear people say he's the Babe Ruth, the Muhammad Ali of rodeo. Uh, Babe Ruth is probably a very good comparison and Muhammad Ali. So that's probably why those two names are brought up there. When you put those people in front of a camera or you put them in front of a news, you know, news article, they just, they shined brighter than anybody else ever had before. And I think that's where those comparisons came from. And again, it just, I think he came along at the perfect time. I don't know. I mean, if he was around today, it'd be kind of funny because imagine Casey on Twitter and Facebook and stuff. But uh, he came along at the right time where rodeo really needed him. And I know even today, rodeo tips their hat to him for for where they are. So it was a, it was a short career, technically, but it was just that time he was there and the, and, the, and the star power he brought. Yeah. I mean, he dominated the 50s, but rodeo, especially for the rough guys, the, the rough stock riders that are riding Bronx and saddle bronc and bareback and bulls that's that's a tough lifestyle right. you're you're not going to stay around in that in that sport for very long and and casey started very young i mean he was out rodeoing at 14 which is just unheard of i mean and, he, and winning rodeos so he was in it for for 12 years where he finally was like you know what Hollywood's sort of knocking at my door. I'm going to take a break and and go and see if I can make a name for myself in Hollywood. Well, let's go back kind of to his earlier life. Where did he learn to ride? Well, he grew up, I mean, in the middle of nowhere, South Dakota. Mission Ridge is, is where their family's ranch was. His dad was, he worked in horses. So he was put on a horse probably before he could crawl. Um, and he was breaking horses at a very young age, like f- getting paid to do it, like around nine years old, which is <laughs> imagine if anybody has a nine year old kid out there, imagine putting your kid on a bronc to break them. So he grew up around it. But I, I think like any great athlete, you're born with that talent. And he was again, he was he was born with the talent, but he was able to nurture that talent by being in that environment. And you grew up on a ranch in South Dakota as well, right? I did. Yeah, I grew up on a ranch in middle of South Dakota. Um, my dad is a cattleman. My mom was a nurse. So um, I was exposed to that rodeo world. I wasn't rodeo. I was a basketball player. But um, I understand what it takes to become a good athlete, the work that's involved that a lot of people don't see. Um, yeah, some of us are born with the ability to play like Casey. 
Um, but again, he worked on it and he worked hard because he knew he had those big obstacles to, to overcome. But his dad, like you said, didn't like what he was doing and, and had a very dim view of rodeo. Tell us why that was. Well, during his dad's era, the rodeo cowboys, again, were they would go from town to town. They would cause a ruckus. Uh, producers would put on rodeos. They would offer these big amounts of money for the time. And then when the rodeo was over, oh, well, we, we don't really have that money for you or we, we're going to pay you a quarter of what we said. I mean, once that happens a few times, even back then when, you know, you couldn't text somebody right away, it got through the papers and, and word of mouth that there's some shadiness going on with the rodeo community. And it just was looked down upon. Unfortunately, it wasn't a respectable job. It was not respectable, you know, and, and, you know, at that time, baseball was really at its height. Um, and rodeo, I think, was trying to become that next sport because football and basketball were not what they are today. Mm. Um, and so I think they were just trying to, to, to make that leap, but it was impossible when people were cheating and being unfair and kind of unloyal. So Casey Tibbs, he defies his dad. He takes off, leaves home without any money to compete in these rodeos. He's like, I'm going to do this. I want to listen to what life was like for him early on. He would lie down on the highway and a bus was coming while the bus wouldn't run over him. And he had somewhere along the line acquired a, a dog harness. So he would not pay to be on the bus. He would use the harness to put hook up with a luggage rack. And he'd just kind of stand there with that. But he started winning. He started winning these rodeos. And his fortunes, they literally changed. So Casey drove up, and his father was up having coffee at the squeak of dawn. And out of his pockets, he took $7,000, and he put it on the kitchen table. His father got up and ran in the bedroom and says, Wake up, Casey done robbed a bank. <laughs> so he just couldn't believe that he'd actually won a rodeo. He actually had done something like that. Yeah, right? and it was respectable, and you yeah. could actually have that kind of money. There was one other fun tidbit that didn't make it into the film. When he was hanging on the, the buses and, and trying to catch these rides, he actually bought a fake spoon that had a fake dead fly in it. So he'd go into a restaurant and eat a bowl of soup, and when he'd get to the bottom of the bowl of soup, he would say, Ma'am, there's a... There's a fly. There's, There's a, a fly, fly in my, my soup. soup. And he, she would give him another bowl of soup so he'd be able to get two meals for one. Very frugal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, his father, they, they had a very strange relationship to the end, right? Or, or was, there a res, was there resolve there? Was there kind of a coming together towards the end? You know, at the very end, his father finally accepted the fact that, you know, what he was doing was respectable. And I mean, he saw his son basically take a sport, a pro sport and put it on his shoulders and, and bring it to the top. Now it's kind of debatable whether or not he actually saw him ride in a rodeo. Um, we were told that he didn't, and that's pretty sad. You know, here's the known as the greatest bronc rider in the history of rodeo. And his father never got the opportunity to see him do it because he passed away. He didn't get to see him win his first championship either, which was very unfortunate. Like we mentioned, he quit during his prime. He was 26. He just won a world championship, but he wanted to become a movie star. Uh, that didn't work out, though, did it? No. I mean, Holly, I can see why Hollywood was knocking on his door. He had the, the looks. shirt, the looks. All yeah, that. He, he, had, he was very flashy. Um, you know, Roy Rogers, all that type of stuff. He kind of fit into that mold. And he was a real cowboy. That, that's the other thing. He was the real deal. And a lot yeah. of these movies in the 50s and 60s were Western genre. So, yeah, they, they pursued him and courted him. And he went out there and he was in quite a few films. It just didn't quite work out the way he wanted. His charisma didn't quite translate onto the screen like it was in person with people. Um, he had a great career as a stuntman and a stunt coordinator. He 
I mean, a funny thing is he taught John Wayne's one of his kids how to ride horse. Oh. So, <laughs> so he, so there's a, he, his connections into big old Hollywood is, is really incredible. And he, his stunt, his stunt career was, was definitely probably more of a success than his acting career. And it seems like he had every opportunity, but he, you know, what happened to his life? How did it kind of resolve itself or end? Well, like I said, the rodeo career is, is very short lived. So once you're out of that spotlight, you're done. Yeah. You, you see this with a lot of celebrities, especially in the sports world. What happens when these men and women get out of that sports spotlight? It's tough for them to adjust to life. Um, that's Casey stuck around in Hollywood. He was asked to do a lot. I mean, presidents would ask him. Um, I, I've seen letters from various presidents where they would ask him to come out and help, you know, do political talks and things like that. So he still kind of stayed in the spotlight a bit, but nothing like it was when in the fifties. Um, but he used his name to, to, you know, teach people how to ride horses and trail rides and things like that. So he lived, you know, a good life up until of course the cancer came and got him. Yeah. A few months before he died, people came together to honor Casey Tibbs. What was it that still drew their respect? I mean, people throw around rags to riches a lot. Um, it's hard not to respect a guy who who came from that. And, and, and yet, you know, when you don't have the support of your parents is, is a tough thing. I mean, I'm lucky to have that support. I can't imagine what he went through having his dad say, you know what, we, we, don't, we don't respect what you're doing and basically disowned him. So, and then what, of course, what he did for the sport of rodeo is just unparalleled to, to anybody. So the respect is still there. You know, as I said, uh, as generations move on, people slowly forget that. And I think that's the beauty of what this film has done. It's reintroducing him to, to a younger generation. And it's a human interest story. It's not just about rodeo. I, I want to stress that. I, I think he, he's just a great study of, of, of that period of time and then just overcoming the odds. Justin, thanks for being here. Yes, thank you for having me. Justin Kaler wrote and produced the documentary Floating Horses, The Life of Casey Tibbs. It screened Saturday at the DocuWest Festival in Denver. He spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A Denver school is putting on a musical to shine a light on its students of color. Denver School of the Arts is performing In the Heights, a Broadway show created by Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame. We visited a rehearsal and met 17-year-old Josue Rodriguez. He's a senior and plays the lead, Yusnavi. Me and my cousin running just another dime a dozen mom and pop stop. I'm not really a musical guy, but this is the first musical that really caught my attention because like it made me proud to be Hispanic and do theater because it did create a platform for, you know, Hispanic neighborhood. In the Heights is about a tight-knit Hispanic community in New York's Washington Heights. In Washington Heights. Rodriguez says it reminds him of where he grew up, Denver's Montbello neighborhood. Just seeing the people dealing with like not only gentrification, but just trying to make it out, trying to make a better living. That's real life stuff put into a musical. Rodriguez has been trying to get the school to do the musical for years and never thought he'd see the day. People are always like, how is DSA going to do this? You know, DSA is such a wide school, but I think we did a pretty good job at putting this together because it's honestly, it kind of shows like how many people of color we actually do have. Back as a child in La Vibora. My name is Vanessa Gomez and I'm in 11th grade. 
Praying, Mama, you would find work Combing the stars in the sky for some sort of sign I play Abuela Claudia. She's sort of the matriarch of the whole community. Abuela means grandmother, uh, but she's not actually anyone's biological grandmother. She's sort of the name given to her by the community because she's so caring. Gomez says she loves how connected her character is to her culture. And I am also very proud of my culture. I like to teach people about it and educate people. And I love being Hispanic. In the Heights is an important show because it allows students of color to portray themselves in roles that are not the maid or the stereotypical role that we have typically seen. Aspen Burkett Miles is Denver School of the Arts assistant principal. This is their lives. They can see themselves in these people. They can see their communities. They can see their neighborhoods. And they're able to um, step right in and use their own experience as a person of color, as a young person of color, and show it in the wealth of their performance. Miles is African-American and says she came to the school a few years ago to help students of color feel more welcome and hopes they'll stay. She believes it's important to have diverse voices in schools and in the arts, voices like that of 11th grader Vanessa Gomez. I'm really excited to show people the aspects that people don't really think of when they think of poor Hispanic communities, that it's a lot of fun and they get through the hard times while still having fun. Now, this isn't an all-Latino cast, even though all the characters are Latino. The creators of In the Heights say that's okay for school productions, but not for professional ones, where the expectation is that there are enough Latino actors to play Latino roles. Denver School of the Arts' production of In the Heights runs through Saturday. Now, let's take you to softball practice. For the Colorado Peaches, Coach Gail Clock gives the lineup. Carol is catching still. Cindy Kay is pitching. Fran, you're going to be at first. Maggie at second. Sandy R at third. Eileen at shortstop. This isn't just any softball team. The Maggie, who's playing at second base, Magdalena McCloskey, is 86 years old, making her the most senior peach. I was always a runner. I mean, that was my big contribution when I joined the team. And I joined the team when I was 77. I was telling my son about it, about these amazing women that play softball and, you know, how old we are. And, and he said, Mom, you're the rookie. All of the peaches are over 50. The team has been practicing once a week since April, preparing for the Huntsman Games, an international senior competition that takes place in Utah in October. Again, Coach Clock. The goals, in my mind, the goals for the group are more that you compete with yourself to be as good as you can be. And when that comes together with all the individuals, the team is stronger and has a chance of winning. I don't base winning on the score. I base winning on the effort, the improvement, and how we put that together when we're in competition. Maggie McCloskey, who's on second base, says she's 100% better now than she was as a 77-year-old rookie nine years ago, both as an athlete and as a person. She says all the peaches feel similarly. You can begin at any age. It's like you're never too old to play. And, uh, and that play element is so, so important. But yes, being on a team, I mean, I, I could go on and on about 
teamwork. Uh, it's just it's just awesome. You kind of have to let go of your your personality, your ego, and all of your beliefs and your positions, and uh, and you get out there and and all that falls away. And Maggie McCloskey and Coach Gail Clock of the Colorado Peaches are now in the studio with me. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Coach Clock, we heard Maggie say that you're never too old to play. Now, that's a, a lovely sentiment for sure. Is it true, do you think? It is true. And the players I've known for some time have actually gotten younger in terms of how they move, their endurance, and how they perform. I guess that's just the idea of keeping fluid. Yes, it is. It's And it's surprised me. I, even though I coached all my life, I didn't anticipate that. Uh, Maggie, are you uh, in pain a lot when you play? How do you feel when you're on the field? Um, when I play, I'm not aware of any pain. Afterwards? <laughs> 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 yes, I hurt. Um, I do have um, something. I don't even like to say it, but it's arthritis. And uh, but it never holds me back. And do you think it helps at all with the arthritis? It absolutely helps. You just keep moving. You keep moving. I understand, uh, Coach, that you also have a team of younger women that you coach, and I wonder if you might compare and contrast what it is to coach uh, younger players versus older players. Do you change your approach? Do you change your expectations, or what? Very little, actually. Um, I see it very similarly, and I tell the younger players that, and they're astounded. And it also motivates them to work harder. There, that, that is to say, the younger players know of the peaches. They do know of the peaches, and a few of the peaches have come and watched the high school kids play, and the high school kids are delighted by the fact that someone has an interest in them. You must have to be aware, though, of the potential for injury, which is different among these players. It is. You have to be aware of what can happen and how it might happen, but you don't anticipate that it will. How long do you think you'll play, Maggie? Um, I hope to play until I'm maybe in my 90s. Um, um, yeah, that's an interesting question because I, I don't know that I want to live forever, you know. I, you know, it's time to recycle this body and, um, <laughs> and move on. Uh, so, but I want... I want to live. I want to live playing. Uh, I want to explore this idea that you don't want to live forever because longevity is so um, kind of lionized in our society. What what makes you say there's a point where it's time? What did you say? It's time to recycle this body. Right. It's it's time to move on. Um, uh, I I do want to. I want to live fully until I'm ready to. To, to check out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You were a nun at one point, and did you play sports in the convent? Um, yes, we were always, um, we played a lot of sports in the convent, yeah. Played volleyball and, you know, uh, uh, some softball, not very much, but yeah, we were very active. And so you had an active life before this? I did, is that key, Coach? Must you have led an active life before joining the Peaches to succeed? I don't think so, because there are some people that that wasn't the case. They hadn't done much before. They certainly had, had not done things in terms of organized sports. Um, a lot of them didn't have an opportunity. 
being the ages they were for girls and women, that wasn't there. What do you mean? Well, with, until Title IX got passed in 1972, there weren't opportunities within the schools to play. Uh, there were a few exceptions with areas of the country where people got to play that are on this team, but very little. And I think that's one of the reasons they're still so excited about playing. It hasn't been overdone when they were young. That concerns me with young players that are getting burned out before they leave high school. Mm. I understand that you teach the Peaches to run properly. I do, and they do it well. And it's incredible to see the change in their stride, their speed, their performance, their balance, things that help you in life otherwise as well. Why is good running form important in softball? It's important because you get to the base faster and you're more likely to be safe. <laughs> I expected some con- considered response about people's joints, but it's all about winning, I suppose. Talk to me about the relationship among the players, Maggie. Uh, do you find that you motivate each other to some extent? Yes. Um, there's There are some players that come who haven't played in 30, 40 years and to see them just come out there and to see the athlete in them just come, it, it's like the athlete is there in everyone. And, uh, and to see them perform, it's just, it's just amazing. And uh, we really, you know, when the fun co- goes out of, of uh, sports, that's when... Uh, you know, there's something, there's something out of balance when that happens. That if you can have fun while you're playing or working out, you know, that makes all the difference in the world. It's so interesting. We just had on the head of the Colorado High School Athletics Association talking about how much pressure young athletes are under these days, and she said something similar, which is that the moment the fun is gone, as at least as some element of the sport, that's when it starts to get scary. That's when the pressure becomes, you know, uh, something that can be crushing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're going to be playing at these games in Utah, these senior international games. And uh, is, is the pressure on in that case, coach? Well, I think that it's more of a self created pressure. There are some people on the team that really fight with their own demons of being too competitive. Huh. And they don't perform as well in competition as they do when they practice. They're harder on themselves than perhaps you are on them? They're much harder on themselves. And that's toning that down a little bit and also so that they don't reflect that towards other players on the team, but being more encouraging. That, that stinking thinking has a way of spreading, I suppose. It, it does. Okay. It does. You're mm-hmm. listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the Colorado Peaches, this uh, senior softball team headed to the Huntsman Games in Utah. When we visited uh, your, your practice, uh, I think what struck us is how receptive the players are to coaching and the gratitude they expressed when you gave them feedback. Is that unusual in athletes? I don't think it's unusual in athletes that haven't had opportunity. When I coached at the college level, they were not as receptive. They often felt they already knew everything and there wasn't anything new to learn, in spite of the fact they could look at professional athletes who are practicing every day and still learning. 
a bit of a hubris there. Maggie, how do you respond to the coach's feedback, do you think? Um, you know, when you get to be our age, if you don't have something out there that pulls your pulls you forward, that really challenges you, um, you lose interest in life. And women at, of our age, when we don't have... Um, when we don't have something like that, we isolate. Hmm. And, um, and this, so this, this is, provides connection for you. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. It's enjoyable. Thank you. 86-year-old Maggie McCluskey plays second base for the Colorado Peaches, and she is coached by Gail Clock. They'll take part in next month's Huntsman Games, an international senior competition in Utah. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.